We are Saxon and Nico. And in November 2021, we went to the COP26 in Glasgow to interview different voices, including decision makers, scientists and environmental activists. We attended COP26 as part of the research for our series, Mission Find Aral, which tells the story of the Aral Sea. In the space of 40 years, the Aral Sea turned from the world's fourth largest lake to the world's youngest desert. Despite the fact it is considered by the UN as one of the worst environmental disasters of the world, it is a situation lesser known by the general public. At COP26, we wanted to learn about the other lesser known environmental issues and about what actions and solutions are needed for a better future. Well, first off, uh, thank you for taking the time. If you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, uh, your work, and what you're trying to achieve here at COP. Yeah. Uh, my name is Faisal Parish. I'm the director of the Global Environment Center. We're a Malaysian-based non-government organization, but we're working in uh, about 20 countries, mainly in Asia-Pacific region. Uh, particularly, we're looking at the issue of uh, peatland ecosystems and their importance to climate change, and how the degradation of them uh, is, uh, is leading to massive greenhouse gas emissions. And that's the reason why we're here at the COP, to try to get the issue of peatlands highlighted into the COP uh, processes and decisions. Thank you. And for those that don't know, uh, if, when you're introducing this subject, what are peatlands and why are they so important? Okay. Peatland is a type of wetland ecosystem. So wetland ecosystem is, is where there's a key element of water uh, within the natural ecosystem. And in, in peatlands, what is special is that the, the dead plant material, the organic material, has piled up at the foot of the plants to, to create, create a deep peat, deep layer of what we call peat or organic material. And that in Southeast Asia, uh, the peatlands are very well uh, developed and the, the layer of organic material is up to 25 meters thick. So you're talking about a 12-story building. That's the, the depth of the peat. And that uh, is, is storing more than uh, uh, such depth would, would store maybe 20,000 tons of carbon per hectare. You compare that to a tropical forest on the mineral soil that store a maximum of 500 tons per hectare. So we're talking about massive amount more, 20 to 50 ti 40 times more carbon per hectare stored. So they're really a hot spot for carbon storage. And they are, actually, peatland is the only ecosystem on the land that is creating fossil fuel. 100% of our coal and maybe 50% of our oil and mineral gas are coming from fossilized peatland from ancient time, from the time of dinosaurs. The peatlands of the time of dinosaurs are the coal deposits of today. And that being the only ecosystem that can store carbon in the long term, if you think of compared to a forest, when the tree dies, then the carbon is recycled. But in the ecosystem of peatlands, the peat is stored in the long term. But that only happens, as I mentioned, it's a wetland system, it only happens when the the peatland remains wet in a natural condition with high water table. As soon as we drain it or we disturb the vegetation, then we lead to the degradation and the loss of that stored carbon. And if we think how much peat is stored per hectare, one hectare degraded or destroyed is releasing a massive amount. So one hectare of peatland destroyed may be equivalent to 10 hectares, 20 hectares or more of forest. Yeah, thank you so much. Why, why is it that peatland don't get the attention that they deserve? I think, I mean, to most people around the world and, and uh, uh, most when people you talk about carbon stock or carbon sink, immediately in the mind is tree. 
but peatlands cover only 3% of the land surface. So most people don't see peatland because they only cover a small area. And But forests cover maybe 20-30%. But if you look at the amount of carbon stored in the peat, even though it covers 3% of the land, it stores almost double the carbon of all of the biomass of all the world's forests combined. So it's very rich, but it's only in restricted areas. And because in restricted area, maybe most people don't see it. And even if they see it, they only see the surface. And sometimes the peatland has forest on it, naturally forest, sometimes is grassland, sometimes is uh, sedges or reeds. And so they see it, oh, this is a grassland. They don't realize underneath the grass, uh, there is 10 meters of carbon stored. And I think that's why people don't uh, really recognize it so often. Maybe people know of the term wetland, uh, but within the wetlands, about half, more than half of the world's wetlands are peatlands, but the biggest extent is in uh, Russia, in Canada, in US, uh, particularly in Alaska, but the people in mainland US don't also know about it because it's in Alaska. So this is, this is one of the problems. Peatlands are significant, but they're out of the public eye. Mm. And uh, when I think peatlands, uh, being a British person, I think Scotland. Yes. Um, it was news to me to discover that there are, in fact, peatlands in, I believe, over 160 countries. Uh, how well studied are the peatlands of the world, and what work is to be done uh, in these coming decades? In fact, 20, 30 years ago, if you read the textbook, they say peatland only occurs in the Arctic, boreal, and temperate regions doesn't even occur in the tropics. But now we know that very significant peatlands occur in the tropics. And basically peatlands occur in places where the production of plant material exceeds its, its decomposition. And that may be areas where the, the temperature is low and the water table is high. High water table reduced decomposition and low temperature reduced decomposition. But also where the productivity is very high. And in the tropics, productivity very high and high rainfall. Those two factors together mean that we get peatlands accumulating there. But even the textbooks were wrong not so long ago. Now we're discovering uh, peatlands in so many countries, even places where you would not think, in so arid countries, in Iran, uh, in, uh, in other countries, we're finding them on mountains, we're, we're finding them in, in desert areas. We've just found uh, peatlands in Cambodia, on the coast of Cambodia, in mangrove forest. No one knew really in Asia, we had the peatland within the mangrove forest, but it's quite unique there. Most of the coastline of Cambodia, uh, there are peatlands within the mangrove forest. So, so these are uh, new things that we're finding out all, all the time. And unfortunately, we're only just finding it just at the same time as the systems are being destroyed. Or maybe sometime we only find it when the system is being destroyed. Mm, thank you. And um, of course, in a, in a natural environment, it takes thousands of years for peatlands to develop to, to full form. Um, is there any way or has there been any experimentation in how we might be able to harness the technology of peat um, and create something that is so efficient um, at, at capturing carbon? Can we learn from peat? I think that, um, I mean, the world is looking for so-called carbon capture and storage and the uh, oil and gas industry are looking for that and they're spending $600 a tonne of CO2 uh, to capture carbon dioxide and pump it deep into the ground. Peat has done that for thousands of years 
it has successfully captured and stored carbon. So uh, I think it's going to be difficult to create peatlands in areas where they did not naturally occur because the climatic condition is wrong. But in all those areas where peatlands naturally occur, then uh, it's possible to uh, to recreate or re restore peatlands in those areas. And there has been some very uh, good success uh, in Sacramento Valley in the U.S., for example, one of the very big peatlands in uh, in uh, California in the U.S. And there they've had a massive agricultural drainage and loss of the peatlands over the last uh, 20 uh, to 60, 70 years, and maybe three meters of peat has subsided and gone. But they've now found that uh, that they can recreate the condition, and they're able to grow it at uh, maybe th three, four, five centimeters a year. So very fast rate, they're able to accumulate and large amounts. In the tropics, the peat does not. Um, accumulate so fast because we have to get the balance right between the production and decomposition. And in the tropics it's hot all year round and so it will decompose all year round. So we're not getting such fast growth rates but still the, the peat growth rate is faster than in the temperate region. But what's more important, uh, given that in say in Southeast Asia, out of the 23 million hectares of peat, maybe about 70 to 80 percent has been opened up or drained or degraded in some way and that is emitting a massive amount of carbon the most important strategic measure is stop that emission because one ton emission reduced is the same as one ton sequestered and so it's much easier and much straightforward and available to stop that massive emission. And for example, one fire in peatland on one hectare for one fire episode could release 600 tons of carbon dioxide per hectare. Massive amount. If you stop the fire on one hectare, 1,000 hectare, 10,000 hectares, then you can think of the massive amount you're reducing. That's fire. Secondly, drainage. One hectare, one year, drainage of peat to say 60 centimeter, 70 centimeter will release uh, up to 60 to 90 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. That's combining carbon dioxide, methane and uh, also nitrous oxide. So those three together uh, give uh, a pulse of greenhouse gas very significant of uh, 60 to 90 tons per hectare. So if we can re-wet that successfully, and even if we take time before it starts sequestering, we're stopping that 60 to 90 tons per hectare. You scale that up across a million hectares, 60 to 90 million tons. So very rapidly you can have a large emission uh, reduction. Unfortunately, many countries have not recognized peatlands in their greenhouse gas inventories in the past. Uh, they have not documented it properly or they have not had the right activity data area of peatland drained, degraded and drained to what level. You can have shallowly drained or deeply drained. Of course, deeply drained, more emissions, shallowly drained less and rewetted to come back to zero or, or near to zero balance. So this is one of the, the challenges that countries are facing, um, that they have not documented it clearly. They like forgot about it or didn't realize it. And then later on when they're drawing their action plan, they're checking back their inventory. Oh, we never mentioned we had peat emissions. So how in our action plan we talk about reducing the peat emission? Oh, 
our emission is actually higher than we recognized before. Countries don't want to say we make a mistake and our emission is higher because they won't say it should be lower. So this is one of the barriers in the government process or procedure sometimes that when they forgot about it, governments are reluctant to put it in. There was a case of Iceland that never realized it had massive peatland and massive peatland drainage and then they forgot about it in their submission and then they really struggled how to add it in later uh, and uh, that led to long debate in the climate convention how you can add things in how you can change and so on so this is an issue facing other countries that have not recognized it and sometimes it's i mean we're talking in southeast asia a lot about the lowland peat but in other regions it's upland or montane peat and sometimes even that is even less recognized this is called grassland or dark soil or black soil or whatever uh, that, that also important and very often it's not properly documented Obviously, your specialization is Southeast Asia. Um, would it be possible for you to highlight um, any people on the ground or specific individuals or organizations that are doing great work to protect peat? Yeah, um, and there's a not lot of organizations. Actually, in Southeast Asia, um, also the government has played a significant role under the coordination of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. Uh, that is the intergovernmental entity that links the uh, 10 countries of the region and they actually one of the first regions at the global level to develop uh, like an action plan for peatlands and that was adopted by the 10 member states in 2006 uh, running up to the period 2020 uh, uh, as in peatland management strategy and that laid out what to do to try and bring uh, the peatlands into more sustainable use and that not only for climate change but also for other functions for biodiversity for water supply for uh, community livelihood and also the big problem that we have a fire and the fires in the region generate when the fires have been burning in the past to generate a smoke cloud covering up to 10 million square kilometers so covering uh, five or six countries and that really everyone everyone knows about the smoke and the problem of the smoke and the impact on the health but they, in the beginning, they don't associate it with peat. They just think this is forest fire or something else. And even at one stage, they would say, oh, this is bushfire from Australia blowing with the wind. No, it's coming from the burning peat that's in, in the region. And that engaged the government. And then the government have created an action plan and then looked to engage uh, partners from uh, civil society, NGOs, uh, research institutes, even private sector and others, to try to address this. So in Indonesia, for example, there's a group called Yayasan Gambut, uh, which means Peatland Foundation. Uh, they've one of the groups that has been established and working in uh, uh, one of the provinces in Indonesia called Riau province. And that province has four million hectares of peatlands in the one province. It's a province with the largest area of peatlands, of which they've had massive problems with fire. And that group Gas and Gambut has been going really engaging the community and trying to, to address the root causes, which is drainage, okay, blocking the drains, raising water level. But many of these areas are occupied by local communities, and the local communities, they're looking for livelihood. How do they survive? How do they feed their children? So you can't just say, go away, stop burning, don't disturb this place. So they're looking to develop fire-free livelihoods so that livelihood can be generated from the peat without degrading it, without uh, draining it, without burning it, and looking at cultivation of the, the crops or uh, plants or trees that are suitable for the high water condition, or creating income from honey, because bees like the trees that naturally grow in the peat, 
and if you restore the the forest with the with the trees, with the flowers, the honey production goes up, and then the price of honey is is, is quite high. There are other other communities uh, in Vietnam, for example, in the peatlands in southern uh, Vietnam. So there's a group from uh, the University of uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, City, uh, which is working uh, with the communities around the uh, Umin Ha National Park and Umin Tong National Park. These are two national parks on peatlands in southern Vietnam, and they've worked through the mechanism set up by government of Vietnam, so-called green contract. And green contract gives a sort of land use right to local communities living around the national park in the buffer zone, uh, such that they can utilize the land, but they need to follow certain uh, requirements. So uh, channel through that group is a seed money to the local community for livelihood activity, but with the understanding they cannot uh, drain, they cannot clear natural vegetation, and they cannot use fire, but they can generate livelihood from certain activities. Uh, which include restoring back the forest or, or, or other activities, but as well as traditional agricultural production. And that has been one of the most important ways of which the previously regular fires outside the national park no longer occur because the community have alternative livelihoods. In Malaysia, uh, there is a group called Sahabat Hutan Gambut Selangor Utara, that means North Selangor, um, Friends of North Selangor Peat Swamp Forest, that is uh, uh, based about 50 kilometers from the capital in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, they have been working, established in 2012, so nearly 10 years. And they're formed from members from four different villages around a large peat swamp forest. This peat swamp forest covers about 80,000 hectares. And it has a long history of fire for the last 25 years. Almost every year, some area burning. And maybe there are 10, 15,000 hectares near to the edge which are frequently burning. Why is it burning? Because previously there was logging in the forest and for logging they, the loggers cut big canals to float the logs out and then they drain the peat and after that, even though people are not deliberately starting fire, maybe even thrown cigarette, campfire or maybe small scale land clearing in the village, a fire spreads into the area and that's what's called a terrible situation for the village. Dense smoke, impact to the health as well as the fire sometimes spread out and destroy the community lands outside. So communities set up uh, this group, Sahabat uh, Hutan and they create a fire patrol. So two or three community members designated every day, particularly in the dry season. They patrol about 40 kilometers of the boundary of the forest, and they're checking, are there any development, are land clearing activities, any fires, any people going there, any encroachment, any, any uh, logging, any uh, hunting. And then they're, because they're the local community, they know who's the local and who's outsider. And whoever they see, then, then they can warn them. And if, if uh, activity is going on which is going to risk the forest, then easily they can report to authorities and authority can act. So that is one important thing. And that is backed up by, uh, we have a fire danger rating system, FDRS. We take uh, daily meteorological measurements and we, uh, so wind, temperature, uh, and uh, moisture, rainfall of the last uh, month, and we can predict the likelihood or risk of fire. And that information we channel to the villagers, and then they have a warning signs throughout the village along the boundary where they're setting the fire danger. And then in the extreme danger, then they're doing more patrol, maybe twice a day, and checking. And so far with this setup since 2012, they've been able to have 95% reduction in the occurrence of peat fire in this landscape. 
So it's really shown how the community engagement and ownership can, can work. At the same time, the community have got, I mean, they've got some income uh, from the work that they're doing on the patrolling some allowances, but they also create a community nursery for tree nursery, and then they're providing, supplying seeds to the government and to also private sector who are coming and sponsoring tree planting activities. So again, income coming to the to the village. And then the village have developed, uh, one of the villages has developed a tourism package. Uh, they're in the rice field area, but they do boat trips into the peat swamp forest. They do homestay in the village. And again, many visitors coming and create uh, income for them. So from a situation uh, 15 years ago, every year, maybe for two months a year, there were fires burning, there was thick smoke, no one wanted to go to that area at all. Now it's changed, almost no fire, and then the, the community is benefiting from a positive management of the peat. Mm, that, that's a good follow-up for uh, one of my questions. Yeah, as you said, local communities, they were living there for decades, so they have, you know, this knowledge. Yeah. So I was wondering what are the mechanisms, because it seems it's working pretty well, and it can be used for many, many other uh, subjects. Yes. What are the mechanisms of like the co-production between scientists and local communities of knowledge, practices, like what are the main mechanisms and how this is really working, you know? Yeah. So I, I think under the program where we work in Southeast Asia, one of the important things is we try to make that linkage with the research community, universities, to engage them in, in the activity. Both, um, there are two, two aspects. One, the research community looking at the peat itself and what is the best way to manage or restore the water le levels and is the restoration successful or not. I mean, to the, to the layman, the untrained eye, maybe it looks restored, but in fact, the greenhouse gas emission is, is still coming. So coming and monitoring and, and testing that and, and comparing that with the water level management and the greenhouse gas. So that's one contribution. The other contribution where the university has been engaging in looking more the social, social science aspect and looking at the community perception and the community benefits, and there have been a number of studies and publications on that, which has helped to support uh, and reinforce the importance of community engagement. And those uh, studies then have helped to convince the government of the real result of the community action. Um, we're a non-government organization, so if we say it's very successful, they say, oh, you're biased because you're the one running the program. But independent review by the social scientists to say this is uh, very beneficial, then that helps strengthen the position. In addition, we had quite a lot of um, researchers uh, coming to work in the area and also volunteers of students from the university to get engaged in activity. And some of those students have taken the idea and gone and spread that activity to other other places. And even the, the community concept that we've done there has been recognized as a model, not only in Malaysia but as in region. And we've had quite a lot of exchange visits. We've had from Bangladesh, from Vietnam, from Indonesia coming to study that and then the groups have gone back and uh, duplicated that. And the same uh, from Malaysia have gone to Indonesia and, and learned the experience there. So this exchange, what we call peer-to-peer -peer learning, is also extremely important. And that's one of the strengths of ASEAN. In the ASEAN region, some countries had worked on peat from an early time. Others had not worked on peat. Others didn't even know they had peat. So by working between the countries, those who had knowledge and those with less knowledge, we can exchange between the country and we can build everyone up to speed quite quickly. And you don't have to start from zero. You can go and see, ah, oh, this was a problem and this is how the group came with a solution. We had that in the Philippines, for example. Uh, Philippines, when we first started, they don't know they had peatlands at all. And then now they 
blow this 20, 30,000 hectares of peatlands, but they don't know how to manage. They, and, and then when we identify the peatland, local government saying, ah, oh, okay, these are the areas where we have problems. Everyone failed with the agriculture. They tried this or that, and then it didn't work. So we involved the local government uh, from the Philippines. They had a group of local government, local community, local NGOs, local university, local government, even the mayor of one other town came to Malaysia and saw the system, documented it, videoed everything, uh, looked at the information awareness material, went back to Philippines, and then they started their own program. And they were able to be very successful with the program. And even the local government that came, then they create a regulation for the protection of the peatlands in their sub-region. So this is actually one of the first local government ordinances or protection requirements in Southeast Asia was you know, from a country that before didn't know they had peatlands, but they fast-tracked to uh, doing a protection. Brilliant. I wonder, uh, I wonder about the, the species that depend on peatlands. Um, in, yeah. just, just to preface that question quickly, uh, in speaking with a conservationist of tigers in Central Asia, yeah. um, he described the tiger as a symbol that allows them to save the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah. With peatlands, could the system be the symbol to save the species? Um, and, and yeah, which species do depend on peatlands? I mean, uh, again, if you look back in the textbook 20, 30 years ago, they say peatland is an ecosystem with very few uh, species because maybe the writing of the textbook, they're looking at somewhere, I mean, uh, in the temperate region in, in, in Europe, where maybe there are not a variety, such a variety, but when you start looking in the details of what is there in the peatland, there is a variety. Maybe there are not a variety, such a variety of large mammals or unique birds in the peatland in the in Europe, but there are many unique plant species specially adapted to that, and then there are many unique uh, microbes and others adapted to the harsh condition because they're acidic condition, waterlogged acidic condition. So it's in the tropics, in contrast, there's an incredible diversity of species. So we have many, many species. Uh, we, we also have tiger, is in the peat. So tiger and orangutan are, one could say, the two of the famous ones, the flagship species which are occurring there. Is it their only habitat? No. But for some places, it is the best remaining habitat. Because the lowland forest or other habitat has all been destroyed around, and maybe the only safe place remaining for orangutan and tiger is in the peat swamp forest. So because harder for people to get in or access or for hunting or, or, or otherwise. So peatland is, is still extremely important. But again, even in the tropics, we don't fully understand the range of diversity. The, one could say one of the key groups of high diverse uh, vertebrate species in the peat are fish, so-called blackwater fish species, which only occur in peat. And previously, again, the textbook said peatland are very poor on fish species and maybe only 20 species. Now we have one peat swamp forest, 50 kilometers of Kuala Lumpur. We're up to 130 species of fish found there. And so far, we have a six new species to science described from this one place, 50 kilometers from Kuala Lumpur, in an area where people said the diversity is low. So we have a lot there. And I think around the world, even in Europe, Everyone probably knows peat swamp forest species, but they know them because they're the species in the aquarium shop. They're the bright colored species. It's because peat water in many places is tea colored. So if you're the male fish 
swimming in tea, coloured water, you want to attract the female, you've got to be bright coloured. So we find that even where the same species occur in the normal river and the peat, the version in the peat is much more brightly coloured. So we have one, the Sclerophagus formosus, the Asian bony tongue, uh, and a fish this long will sell 10,000 US dollars for one fish uh, in the aquarium trade and it has beautiful gold or red uh, scales on it and it's a very 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 high price and but if you catch the same species in the river it's it's a silver or green color so the the fact that these are in peat in the in the dark water leads to the adaptation and in addition to varieties in the peat we get separate uh, species only found in the peat. So many of them are, are only in the peat and are all generally bright colored. We also have the world's smallest vertebrate. It's a species of fish described only about 10 years ago. And uh, uh, first they caught this one, very small. They thought this must be the fish fry, this big, seven millimeters long. Then they looked under the microscope. It was a pregnant female. So they know at maturity seven millimeters long, the world's smallest vertebrate. And now we've uh, found four or five species of the same similar species. And it really can live in the peat even without a river or a pond, just in the, in the wet bits of peat. But, and in different peatlands, you have a different species. So even one, one area will have a different species to the, the area 20 kilometers away because they're isolated. And so new species uh, evolve. So there's really high, high, high diversity. But uh, you're right that because now the attention is coming back to peatland ecosystem and the function it plays for the global climate system, maybe the peatland is becoming the, the icon that we need to uh, conserve peatland. And when we conserve peatlands, these many people may not pay attention to a small fish like this for conservation purpose, but if you protect the ecosystem, then the small fish will be protected as well. Wow, that's really beautiful. Uh, I, I guess I just have one final question, which is um, what international law exists at the moment um, to universally protect the world's peatland? And is, there, is this something that you're hoping that maybe COP can, uh, can serve? Yeah. Uh, there's not a formal international law protecting peatlands. We do have a, international conven a convention on wetlands of international importance, the so-called Ramsar Convention, uh, which is uh, guiding countries to manage wisely all the wetlands in, in their territory. And for those countries that are signatories, I think now 160, 170 countries, so that's probably a majority of the countries where peatlands are, are signatories to Ramsar Convention but it's so-called uh, soft law in that there are not penalties. Um, in order to turn it into something more concrete, um, there are mechanisms under the UNFCCC. Again, UNFCCC is not a, is not a, a leg legislation that can be in, enforced fully, but uh, many countries are now incorporating peatlands into their nationally determined contributions having recognized, previously they don't recognize, now they're recognizing the importance of peatland, they're incorporating into the nationally determined contributions. Those are still seen as a voluntary measure, but there's a lot of peer pressure and monitoring of that to make sure that uh, they're protected. We've also seen for forest ecosystems, there's been like, a, again, a decision here at this meeting at the high level segment of uh, 
uh, stopping deforestation by 2030 or reversing it. Um, we need something similar like that for for stop and reverse the degradation of peatlands. Of course, some peatlands, like in the tropics, are, are forested as well, so naturally forested, but the majority of peatlands in the northern regions are, are open systems dominated by moss or sedge, so they would not come under forest. But the tropical peatlands would come under the definition of forest, so they would be covered by the current declaration. But we need that broader, and, and the fact that peatlands do store twice as much carbon as the biomass of all the world's forests combined on 3% of the land area, I mean, you better focus on that. And we're talking about raising money or finance, and people are saying limited money, then focus where the carbon store is. Where is the biggest bang for the buck? Where is the biggest uh, result that you can achieve with the smallest amount of money? And that is peatlands, because we've even calculated, although peatlands are 3% of the land area, the peatlands which are badly degraded and emitted are 0.01% of the land area of the Earth. So let's focus some money on that 0.01% that produces so much proportion of the global emissions. That would make sense from a cost-effective point of view and also operational point of view. And if we want to fast-track getting uh, to solution of climate to, to net zero by 2030, we need to focus on those fast and easy things. If you want to create a tropical forest of trees 100, 100 meters tall, you're going to wait 100 or 200 years. You're not going to do it fast. Whereas if you can stop and re-wet, stop the degradation and re-wet peatlands and start restoring their function, that can be done in a much shorter time frame.